0: listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity.
1: And welcome to the one thousand eight hundred and eighty eighth edition of St. Edmundsby News Talk for the twenty first of July, twenty twenty two. The editor of this edition is Sue Atchison. The producer is Colin Holmes, and your readers are Chris and David Chris Payne and David Palmer. We should also mention our processing team, who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines.
0: CQC highlights. Risk of injury at a town care home.
1: Music festival planned for park sparks fears of disorder.
0: Special welcome for the Queen's baton as it arrives in town.
1: Jewelers to close after 277 years.
0: A Berries and Edmonds care home has been told to improve after inspectors saw poor practice that placed people and staff at risk of injury. North Court care home in Northgate Street was rated requires improvement by the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, after an inspection between June 6 and June 8, which was prompted in part by by concerns received about medicines and staffing, as well as moving and handling. The home, run by Four Seasons Healthcare, which says it has implemented an action plan to address the concerns, was previously judged to be good in 2019. A report of the CQC's findings said the kitchens were not managed to a high standard and food hygiene was putting people at potential risk with photos of poor food storage shown to the manager of opened, undated food. Observing poor practice that placed people and staff at risk of injury, the report said that when one person was leaning out of bed, a staff member physically pushed them back into bed, which could have caused harm to both. Systems were not robust enough to demonstrate safety was effectively managed, which placed people at risk of harm. The CQC was so concerned about moving and handling in the home that it asked four seasons what improvement plans it had, but did not receive a response within the requested five working days. Inspectors noted that while the current manager, who was leaving for another post, had a positive impact, was liked and respected by staff, There had recently been many managers, and these changes and inconsistencies had an impact on the service. Due to staff vacancies, there was a high level of agency staff, but many had worked in the home before and knew people well. The manager told inspectors their biggest challenge was consistency of staff and acknowledged they are redressing the balance in favour of more female staff. Inspectors found infection control processes were good, People were protected from the risk of abuse and said they felt safe and that staff had received safeguarding training. A four season spokesman said our hard working teams strive each day to protect everyone in our homes. Since the inspection in June, we have implemented a comprehensive action plan to address the areas noted.
1: Worried residents fear the historic <laughs> park could be overrun with thousands of ravers if plans for a music festival are given the go ahead. Residents along Plover's Way and the Curlews in Bury St Edmunds have raised concerns after spotting a license application for an event on August the 27th at Nelton Park. Highfields Limited has applied for a premises license as part of plans for a magical gathering of music and art, for which tickets went on sale last December. A full lineup of acts has been announced on the Highfields Festival Facebook page and the event website suggests early bird tickets at £28 and tier 1 tickets at £33 have already sold out, with only tickets for tier 2 at £38 left. One resident of Plovers Way said last year in Cambridge the festival attracted around 6,000 people over two days what's concerning is the license application for the Noughton park seems open-ended as if they can hold similar events whenever they want across the whole of the park the first we heard of it was when we spotted a notice two weeks ago saying any objections had to be in by july the thirteenth the news was shared on a community whatsapp group and i for one have objected as have others we want clarity about what is planned, what the licence is for and reassurance about how often it can be held. If not, we want it stopped. Noughton Park is not suited for this kind of thing. Another resident said, Noughton Park is a joyous family place and we are very happy for events such as the fun runs, charity events and folk festival, which we hardly knew was on. The event is another, This event is in another league. It seems like some kind of pop festival or rave, and we should really get some kind of say. How will it be policed? How will they keep people out? What mess will there be afterwards, especially if alcohol and even drugs are involved? The way it's being presented is like some kind of done deal. Henry Hopkins, chair of Noughton Parish Council, said, We've also strongly objected on the grounds of preventing crime and disorder, public safety, public nuisance and protecting children from harm. We are disappointed the organisers haven't engaged with us and made no effort at reassurance. In the application, organisers acknowledge responsibility to plan, manage and monitor the licensable activities. These include film screenings, live music, recorded music, performance, dance and alcohol sales. They also state they will operate a zero-drugs policy. A spokesman for West Suffolk Council said we have received a licensing application which we will be considering. No permissions have been given at this time. It is understood further permission would be needed for this and any further events from the park itself. Highfields Limited has been approached for comment.
0: Bury St Edmunds welcomed the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games Queen's Baton Relay to the county. The Curtain raiser to the Games on July 28th arrived in the Abbey Gardens for its first of two shows in the town, having already visited all the nations and territories of the Commonwealth. The only Suffolk stop for the Baton saw three bearers, who were nominated for their contributions to their communities, take it around the Abbey Gardens and its ruins. Clare, Countess of Euston, the Lord-Lieutenant of Suffolk, who was one of the VIPs at the event and presented the baton to the first bearer, said, I think this is such an exciting occasion for Bury St Edmunds. I feel it's quite emotional that this object has been the whole way around the world, and we all have the privilege today to see it carried in Bury St Edmunds. The first bearer was Bernie Millard from the town, a veteran of the Royal Marine Commandos, chairman of Bury St Edmunds British Legion, a former schoolteacher of 20 years at Culford School, has raised thousands of pounds for charity. He then passed the baton to Lynn Carpenter from Thurrock in Essex, who was chosen after being involved in netball for more than 40 years, contributing as a player, coach, administrator and volunteer. The final leg was taken by Wendy Hooton, a fundraising Women's Royal Army Corps veteran of 18 years from Bury St Edmunds. Not only has Wendy raised more than £100,000 for the Women's Royal Army Corps Association charity, but she also supports town events such as this year's East Anglian Beer and Cider Festival and had a stall on the market for Armed Forces Day. After completing the final section of the relay, she said, It felt absolutely brilliant. I'm ecstatic that I was chosen from the nominations to do this because it's such a big thing. It's one thing to be nominated, but... To be selected is just absolutely brilliant and what a fantastic day for it. Lovely breeze, blue skies and the sun shining. Just perfect. Wendy stopped on the final straight of the route to lift the baton and salute two special people by saying, one for the Queen and one for Colin, Wendy's husband who had died 20 years ago to the day. She said, I couldn't believe it that the baton has gone all round the Commonwealth and with all the days it came to Barry St Edmunds, was the 20th anniversary of Colin's passing. He would have been very proud. He was more reserved than me, but he would have been so supportive of this and all the fundraising that I do for the Women's Royal Army Corps Association. The baton, which contains a message from Her Majesty the Queen, which will be read at the opening ceremony, then went to the Festival of Suffolk's Community Games at the Town's Leisure Centre and King Edward VI School facilities. The community games, described as a carousel of activities, Gave children the chance to try their hands at the likes of at the like of BMXing, dance, archery, climbing, and circus skills. There was also an Ipswich Town Football Club Fun Zone, netball taster sessions by the town's Jets Football Club, a uh, netball club, excuse me, the Regional Special Olympics competition hosted by Special Olympics Suffolk, and the Wildcats Football Festival hosted by the Suffolk Cafe. The event was closed by a speech from Lady Clare and a performance from Dance East.
1: A family run jewellers, which has been based in Bury St Edmunds for nearly 280 years, is to close. Thurlow Champness and Son Jewellers in Abbeygate Street has announced it will shut on August the 31st, as Trevor Salt, managing director and majority shareholder, is retiring. The jewellers, which employs nine staff, dates back two hundred and seventy seven years and is believed to be the oldest continuing retail business in the town. Mr. Salt, who is retiring after more than forty years in the trade, said it's been a very difficult decision which we've had which we haven't taken lightly. Unfortunately, we have no one to pass the business to, and after a long career, I'm keen to focus more on family life and invest some time in my hobbies. When we close the doors for the final time, it will be an incredibly sad day. We are thought to be the oldest continuing retail business in Bury St and we are very proud of our legacy. Its roots date back to 1745, when watchmaker George Lumley set up his business at 14 Abigail Street company was officially established in 1815 by john gudgeon by the late 1800s and sorry by the late 1800s the store was known as a jeweler's and watchmaker selling clocks watches diamond jewelry and gold pieces in 1901 edward thurlow champness bought the company as a going concern and the champness family moved into the living quarters above the store until 1947 A short time later, in 1950, the business was passed down to his son, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Thurlow-Champness, a trained optician. He became well known, not only as the store's owner, but also as the commander of the Suffolk Yeomanry. The current owners are the third generation of family to run the jewellers. Closing down sale will see all jewellery reduced by 50%. Mr Salt said it was a time of mixed emotions as although he wanted to retire the business was one of the last physical connections to his later mother Sonia and stepfather Peter Thurlow Jampness. There's a large part of me that feels very sad he said I have two children neither of whom want to come into the business the, so there's no succession from that point of view. It's really, it really is the truly the end of an era. It's been a fascinating business to have worked in. He thanked his staff, including Director Leslie Ryland, who has worked there for 30 years. The average length of service of the existing staff is about 20 years. Mr Salt added, jewellery is my passion. I love working with our customers, helping them to find that special piece to celebrate an important occasion. We are lucky to have a wonderful, steadfast customer base. Some families have been shopping with us for three generations. We've seen them come in with their children and their grandchildren. I will treasure many happy memories of these times. It's been a huge privilege to work with our long-serving team of knowledgeable staff, to whom we are incredibly grateful, and we wish them the very best for the future.
0: Allotment holders in Bury St Edmonds are being urged to report any problems to the town council and police after some gardeners spoke of their plots being raided. Berry Town Council said it had not been made aware of any reported thefts for more than 12 months. However, one allotment holder at the Cotton Lane site said entire crops had been taken, while others said beans, cabbages and strawberries had been raided recently. Nicola Miller, who has held an allotment at Cotton Lane for many years, said, over the last two decades, we've had regular incidents of theft and damage to our allotment shop, but it seems to be much more brazen now. We've lost entire crops to thieves, and we know it's humans and not muntjacks or other wild animals, and I very much doubt these are being stolen by hungry people. I don't have a problem with someone taking a few things because they can't afford fresh fruit and veg, but when you are stealing an entire bed of calibre cauliflower that's not hunger that's capitalism it's so dispiriting and there's so little the police can do there are a lot of people on our site who can't afford these losses we're not all middle class Tom and Barbara's living the good life Greg Luton, town clerk said we have more than 300 allotments in the town and although we haven't been made aware of thefts of items or produce from the Cotton Lane site uh, we'd ask allotment holders to report any issues Suffolk Police frequently remind residents that during the summer they should regularly check their allotments and sheds for disturbances and report problems to them and us.
1: Taxi drivers applauded as councillors agreed to long call for an increase in fares. A compromise proposal submitted to West Suffolk Council's licensing and regulatory meeting on behalf of West Suffolk Hackney drivers was for an increase from £3.80 to £5 for one mile between 6am and midnight, with each subsequent mile costing approximately £2.10. This proposal was mainly to offset rises in fuel costs as well as the cost of living. These increases were higher than those proposed in West Suffolk Council's review, which suggested that fares for one mile between 6am and midnight should be increased to £4.40. Rob Dawling, a West Suffolk hackney driver, said at the meeting, Four months ago I asked for an emergency rise in taxi rates due to present conditions. Andy Drummond, County Councillor for Newmarket and Reg Lodge, was not interested. Drivers at the moment are earning £5 an hour. In view of cost, I don't know how anybody can be serious about £5. I have proposed a minimum compromise of £4.60 per mile. If we have an annual review alongside this, we may be able to keep some taxi drivers in the town. Conservative council councillor Brown Harvey agreed. Fuel costs are jumping exponentially. We cannot allow an organisation that is supporting our community to be making a loss. The proposal agreed unanimously was to implement the fare increases requested by West Suffolk Hackney drivers, along with two amendments that the consultation period is cut from the proposed 23 days in the West Suffolk Council's review to the statutory minimum of 14 days, so the fare increases could begin sooner and that the fares are reviewed every six months. Meanwhile, West Suffolk's Council Cabinet will next week consider removing a policy which requires all new taxis or replacement vehicles to be wheelchair accessible for the time being, pending a review in 2025. Cabinet will also be asked to agree replacing the two taxi zones in the former St Edmundsbury and Forest Heath areas with a single West Suffolk zone. It will also look to extend the current maximum age of a taxi to 15 years for the time being.
0: Families and motoring enthusiasts made the most of the sunshine on the 10th of July and flocked to the Rotary Classic Car Show at Colford School. The event, run by the Berry Abbey Rotary Club, saw just over 4,000 people attend to see a display of over 550 cars, with 55 stalls, including crafts, food and produce. The show also raised £25,000 for its headline charity, the Teenage Cancer Trust, for the second year in a row, as well as other local charities. Peter Summers, car show team leader, said it was a warm day like last year, but it ran very smoothly, with no hold-ups and no traffic jams. It ran really well. This year we had more cars on show and more stalls. Everything went very successfully. We've had lots of positive feedback on social media. Our Facebook page has had 48 hours of excellent remarks. Peter said he was pleased to have beaten last year's charity figure of £21,000 and thanked the volunteers for helping out at the show. We're just delighted to raise that much money, and that's down to the support both from the exhibitors, some of whom have been with us for many years, and, and the public turning out on the day, he said. It is a lot of hard work, but it's very rewarding, and it is down to all the volunteers. The Teenage Cancer Trust guarantees the money is spent locally, so we raised money in East Anglia to be spent in Ipswich and Cambridge. That seems to matter to a lot of people. I'd also like to say a big thank you to the UASF at Lakenheath and Mildenhall for sending 35 volunteers, because we needed over 100 volunteers to man our site. Planning for the next show begins in December, with exhibitor bookings usually full by March.
1: A former nursery director has admitted bribing two workers to back up her lies to Ofsted over how many staff were on duty when three children escaped from the grounds and got onto a road. Elaine McManus, aged 66, who was the manager and director of Stepping Stones Nursery in Haverhill, paid the two nursery workers £100 each after they signed a false statement, about how many staff were working on the day of the incident, Suffolk Magistrates Court heard. Catherine M's prosecuting, said that on March 30th, March 30th, 2021, under the supervision of an 18-year-old nursery worker, three children were able to leave the playground unattended and were found in the road by a member of the public. McManus should have reported the incident to Ofsted, but it was instead reported by the member of the public who had found the children. Miss Ems told the court that there should have been another member of staff on duty, and when confronted, McManus told Ofsted inspectors that there had been. She then wrote a statement saying that two members of staff had been on duty that day and altered official records. McManus then got both staff members to sign the full statement and tell inspectors an untrue version of events, Miss Ems said. Both staff members were then paid £100 each, straight into their bank accounts as a reward, the court heard. On April 16th, McManus phoned the Access Head Officer for Suffolk County Council and explained what had happened. She admitted that she hadn't told the truth and had panicked and paid £100 each to the two staff members. McManus stepped down from her role and the nursery was closed down by Ofsted, the court heard. In police interview, <coughs> McManus made full admissions about what happened, but said she never thought it as a bribe, Miss Ems told magistrates. The court heard that MacManus of Girlings Close Haverhill had no previous convic- convictions. On Friday, she pleaded guilty to two charges of giving financial advantage to induce improper performance of a relevant function or activity. Magistrates ordered an all-options pre-sentence report and granted MacManus unconditional bail ahead of her sentencing. She is due to appear back at Suffolk Magistrates Court on August 12th. John Griffiths, leader of West Suffolk Council and the West Suffolk Conservatives, confirmed that MacManus has been suspended from the group with immediate effect. While a spokesman for West Suffolk Council said, in cases such as this, the council has to follow the law and await sentencing before any consideration can be made regarding disqualifying a councillor.
0: Eat, drink and feel good. That's the motto of a new healthy juice and food store set to open its doors in Bury St Edmunds. Work is now complete on the new juice-bross store in the Ark, which has been intriguing shoppers for weeks. It sells a range of healthy drinks and food, including plant-based organic bowls, smoothies, and freshly made juices. There's been loads of interest since we took the blinds down, with people popping in to ask about the store, said owner Omer Sabechi. I've been o- hoping to open a store in the town for several years now, and when this site became available, I jumped at the chance to take it. Juice Bros was founded in 2006 and is based at RAF Lakenheath. The company has a contract with the US military and also has outlets at military bases in eight locations around the world, including Germany, Italy and the United States. The Berry Store will be its first public commercial outlet and Omar has plans to open others in Cambridge, Milton Keynes and Norwich. The new store is at the site of the former Jessup's photography shop, which closed in August 2020. We have 12 staff who are all local and we've been working on training in the run-up, said Omar, who also lives in the town. It's a great location and we've refurbished the unit from top to bottom over the past two months. We sell a range of healthy juices, including smoothies, freshly made to order with no additives, as well as healthy food, including made-to-order salads, side bowls and grain bowls. We also sell speciality coffees. Our focus is always on health.
1: A West Suffolk SOS bus, bus has received vital funding so it may reach fully operational status. The National Lottery Communities Fund has awarded a grant of £9,360 to the West Suffolk SOS bus to take it from minimal road legal to fully operational. SOS bus volunteer John Border said, Anything to do with a bus that's, that size is expensive. This funding will help with our maintenance so we can reach further afield. The SOS bus is a modified single decker bus originally designed to help the vulnerable in Newmarket's nighttime economy. On the inside, it has a reception area with seating and a kitchenette and a private treatment or consulting area. By providing the SOS bus service on busy club nights in town, they hope to reduce the demand on A&E by rehydrating people to ensure they're sober enough to take a taxi home. The SOS bus first became operational in 2010 and John had a hand in contributing to its original design as a town pastor. He said, I'd been doing outreach work in the streets for six months prior, so understood the need for the SOS bus. Thus far, the bus has mainly been operational in Newmarket and Bury St Edmunds, but the team hoped to expand to the rest of Suffolk and parts of East Cambridgeshire. The SOS bus service had been mothballed for two years during the pandemic, but was able to regain roadworthy status after a series of donations from local organisations. It made its return to service at the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, where the organisers were able to raise awareness give out plenty of water, and help out a a few first aid cases. Though the Lottery Fund donation makes a considerable dent in their fundraising target, the group is not stopping its efforts just yet. It's still waiting for a final repair figure following the bus's last safety check and accepts donations via its GoFundMe page. John added, Donations would be brilliant, especially as our fuel prices have increased recently. But our main priority is currently recruiting volunteers.
0: Well, it's good to see new businesses coming to Berry, and uh, here's a report of another one. A national bakery chain is set to open a shop in Bury St Edmunds at the site of a former department store. The Cornish Bakery Limited has been given permission to make changes to the remaining empty unit at the former Palmer's building in Buttermarket. It sought planning and listed building consent from West Suffolk Council for two hanging signs, redecoration of the shop front as well as an air conditioning system and freezers connected to roof-mounted condenser units. The Cornish Bakery, which has shops across the country, including in Southwold, will sell drinks, breakfast, lunch, cakes and pasties. There would be seating inside for customers who wish to dine in. Menswear retailer Brook Taverner opened last week at the other unit at the converted building. The store has created six jobs. The former Palmer's was transformed into two ground floor shops and eight apartments on the first, second and third floors. The landmark site had stood empty since Palmer's closed in January 2018, having traded there since 1961.
1: Maybe this is more your thing. A new wine bar is set to open in town next month. The wine cellar is currently being constructed at 33 The Butter Market, Bury St Edmunds, the site of the former goldsmith's jewellers. It is the project of Bradley Dorrington, aged 25, from Thurston. Mr Dorrington is currently the general manager of MJP at the Shepherd's Restaurant in Fenditton, Cambridgeshire. He has worked in the hospitality industry since leaving school, including pubs, hotels and restaurants in Kent, Devon, London and Newmarket. The wine cellar will feature around a 100 wines from around the world with a special wine wall from which customers can choose different varieties by the glass or bottle. It will be open from midday Wednesday to Sunday from August the 5th and also serve sharing boards and small plates. The idea is to create a relaxed environment which people can enjoy throughout the day, said Mr. Dorrington. Wine is my passion and I've always loved the idea of running a wine bar with food. We will have a wide variety of wines, some on the safer side, some more explorative and others more out there. We will have around 45 covers and serve party foods, sharing boards and small plates. There will also be tea, coffee and soft drinks.
0: So let's um, have some letters. Um, Here's one from Nigel Wright, uh, who lives in Bury St Edmonds. Uh, under the heading of ministers entitled Severance Pay. He writes, So our local MP, Jo Churchill, has resigned with a heavy heart from her post as Minister for Agri-Innovation and Climate Adaption, just as well as she parrots nothing more than the establishment narrative. What is also likely to be a lot heavier is her purse. MPs resigning from their posts are entitled to Severance Pay, In some ministers' cases, this is something in the region of £15,000. No doubt once the party leadership contest is settled, she'll be reinstated. In her letter of resignation, she continued in unadulterated yes-minister style. Our beloved country is facing an uncertain future and strong headwinds. A clear, selfless vision is needed. A clear, selfless vision? Show me an MP with this qualification and I just might have a bridge to sell you.
1: Um, My letter is from Martin Webb of Bury St Edmunds, and he says, Pairs schoolboy rivalry taken into politics. I'm sure that there will be many who will be sorry to see Boris Johnson go. I'm not among them. That being said, I do not rejoice at his departure from high office, for I do not envy his successor's job in clearing up the mess he's left behind. I fervently hope that this will mark the end of the Cameron Johnson years. Johnson and Cameron took their schoolboy rivalry into the world of politics and, in doing so, did great damage to our national political culture, our nation standing in the world, the economy, and to the union itself. I could well be that now. These years have ended, we shall, after the mess has been cleared up, eventually move into a better world. I am not, however, holding my breath.
0: Now... A letter from Elise Temple, who's the Director of Education and Skills at NACRO, and she says young people deserve better. She writes, Recently, data from the Department of Education showed that the proportion of 16-year-olds who are NEET, N-E-E-T, not in education, employment or training, is now at its highest level since 2012. This is a devastating indication of the effect that years of interrupted education and the pandemic has had on our young people on their ambitions, on their mental health. In our education centres, we are aware of these missing young people, the ones that were already vulnerable, already struggling, but because of the pandemic, this wasn't picked up. Unfortunately, many of those young people have now slipped through the net. We need a reunited effort to find these young people and to engage them back in education, training or employment. Once we had a national collections service, which could do this exact task, Now we have a patchy postcode lottery of provision to support and engage neat young people. They deserve better than this. We need more focus and more funding for these young people who are disengaged from education. And we need this funding to be extended to cover 16 to 18 year olds through a pupil premium plus.
1: My next letter is from Jim Mitchell Mitchell, and he says contest seems to be about cutting tax so the woman standing in the footsteps of the blessed margaret thatcher elizabeth truss has metaphorically thrown her hat into the ring of the interseen conservative party leadership election i hope the current foreign secretary has thick skin because it's going to be bloody however i wish her well sadly though i'm not impressed with at least two members of her supporting team nadine doris and jacob rees mogg who in my opinion are not fit for office any any office and will only detract attention away from her campaign. Unfortunately, this Tory leadership scrobble is all about cutting t- tax. Cutting tax is not going to help those hundreds of thousands of struggling families, literally on the breadline, going to food banks for their existence. They won't benefit um, from any c- cut in taxation. Obviously, this agrarious war of words between the various conservative leadership hopefuls is who can be the most creative tax cutter to present before the paid-up members of the Conservative Party. However, cutting welfare to pay for these tax cuts rather diminishes the help that many of the most elderly Tory voters, because of an ageing population, now depends. Therefore, can we see something along the lines of compassion, in this Conservative Party election, a one-nation Conservative leadership election, benefiting the majority of folk in the country, not just those fortunate people with both money and power.
0: Now a letter from Robert Brander from Rushmere, Ipswich, and he writes about theory of leadership. Sir, Boris Johnson believes that Darwinism will produce another leader who will continue his great progress for Britain. Ian Smith... East Anglian Daily Times letters on July the 12th, considers that God, not Darwin, should be given any credit going. Darwin only produced a theory of evolution. From his observations of the plants and animals on the individually isolated islands of the Galapagos, he concluded mutant organisms developed to adapt to each individual island. Darwin withheld his theory from mutant people, atheists and religious, until he found someone else was suggesting the same theory. Having a supporter competitor, he proposed the doctrine of survival of the fittest. The fittest was the fittest to adapt. Darwin never claimed to be a god. He only proposed a theory at a time when religion was held in greater esteem than science. Michael Faraday, a developer of the understanding of electricity, was buried in an unconsecrated ground in Highgate hem- uh, Cemetery. Be it God or Darwinism, who arranged for Boris Johnson to be our leader? I do not consider this to be a profitable subject for discussion for Parliament or the public. There is no place for narcissists with vivid imaginations as to their abilities in a democracy. Facts, management abilities and listening to practical and economic advice from voters is what is required. For a system to work, it requires a realistic foundation... Contempt for your neighbour is not a basis for civilised living. Belief that your religion, country, clan, politics is superior to others encourages conflict. Employing science and facts has improved most people's living conditions. Politics run by an oligarchy but claimed as democracy ignores these factors. Our government aims to increase localism for councils to make decisions without research, You and your fellow voters have supported and accepted the present situation. Consider how you can change this situation. Given this situation, given the opportunity, try lobbying your MP at one of their publicity outings. Please publicise if you get a sane response.
1: My next letter is from Amanda Brody, and she says, Change, but not always for the better. Modernisation, now there's a word to put fear into your heart. That's because those of us who have lived long enough on this planet know that words like this, which sound good, inevitably end up being just the opposite. When I was working in an office, two similar words used by management had us all groaning. One was reorganization. This generally translated into job losses. The other was system upgrade. This would be followed by weeks of hair hair tearing as the computers kept glitching or collapsing completely as they and we tried to adapt to the changes. Similarly, modernisation usually means change, but not often for the better. So, I predict, will the case with plans currently afoot to close hundreds of ticket offices at train stations around the country? This has inevitably been touted as part of a plan to modernise the railways. The rail industry spokesman said, The pandemic has been an unprecedented financial shock to the railway. While no decisions have been taken over the ticket offices with the acceleration of changing travel patterns and more passengers migrating to digital technology, many jobs will need to change to become more passenger-centric. Three things strike me about this statement. Firstly, I'm not sure how much longer we can go on blaming COVID for what has been a failure of investment and management over many years. Apparently, £14 billion of public money was pumped into the railways to keep them afloat during the pandemic. Secondly, are people migrating to digital technology because they want to or because they're forced to as other options are withdrawn? Thirdly, exactly what is meant by passenger-centric? If it is that we should put the passengers first in making decisions, then I applaud that. I would have thought, however, that the interests of passengers could be best served by giving them access to a real person to help with any problems. Then there is the issue of the elderly, disabled, or those with learning difficulties. Travelling is enough of a challenge for them, without having to grapple with technology with which they may not be familiar, or which may not offer them the flexibility they need. And we all have seen the chaos that ensues, if the tech goes wrong, and it often does. We are so reliant on technology these days. There is little or no backup system anymore. Call me a dinosaur if you like, but I like to hold a paper ticket in my hand and be able to speak to a real person, if I have any questions. Once I missed the last off-peak train from Liverpool Street and faced a hefty six-pound increase in my fare. A kind person in the ticket office worked out I could avoid this by changing trains at Colchester instead of getting the direct one. Would a machine have offered me the same service? I think not. The unions are rightly angry at the job losses this modernisation will inevitably bring, as recent strike action has shown. But what is even more concerning is the increasing reliance on technology and the loss of human contact. This is the case in many areas of modern society, and it is not an improvement.
0: A letter from Cyril Cayley of Woodbridge. Uh, He talks about Ipswich Hospital car park and gives us all a warning. I recently had an appointment at Ipswich Hospital. On arrival and with time to spare, I searched out a parking space in what was formerly a staff car park. I was there for about an hour. When attempting to retrieve my car... I found that both payment machines were out of order. A note was attached instructing payees to go to the main car park, F. Being of somewhat an advanced age, I took my car to find a working machine. Serious mistake. I circumnavigated car park F twice. The only visible machine was, you've guessed it, out of order. A recently installed machine on the opposite side of the road was also not working or not commissioned. Eventually I found a machine tucked away behind the new buildings near entrance 6. This machine informed me I didn't have to pay as I'd only just entered that car park. So home I came somewhat concerned that I hadn't paid for my original parking. I rang the parking office where I learned much to my surprise that each car park has its own ANPR and that I was therefore liable for a parking penalty for my original parking. So beware... Don't move your vehicle from one car park to another without paying for each one separately. I just settled by making a payment over the phone. I was mistaken in thinking the ANPR cameras read your plate when entering and when leaving at the main entrance. Not so.
1: I have no name and address for the next person, but they say garden criteria came too late regarding the story about berry in bloom judging berry free press june the seventh it would have been nice to have been warned in plenty of time of the new criteria set this year allowing gardeners plenty of time to rethink and reorganize accordingly perhaps at the end of last year's judging would have been the perfect opportunity to publicize the change Finally, apart from the welcome certificates, vouchers of two different values might be a sufficient incentive to encourage more people to take an interest in their gardens. Perhaps £50 and £75 might not be asking too much.
0: Dogs in cinema, it's no joke, says Brian Davis from Berries and Edmonds. And this is our last letter. Last Friday wasn't April the 1st, so I was looking for another reason for that you must be joking letter Regarding the unbelievable practice of allowing dogs to accompany their owners to the Abbeygate Cinema. There could possibly be a case for allowing your pooch as a special treat to set in during the screening of Lassie Come Home, or at the risk of frightening your canine treasure, the House of the Baskervilles. But joking apart, what on earth possessed the person who authorised such an unbelievably unhealthy and unhygienic idea in the first place? I am actually an animal lover, particularly got dogs. But let's be fair, horses for courses and outing to the <laughs> cinema would never replace walkies in the woods, would it? We wouldn't dream of taking our wire haired terrier anywhere but our garden.
1: My last letter is written by Nina Downing, and she is a PDSA veterinary nurse. And she says protect your pets this summer. With summer upon us, many of us will be spending more time in the garden, enjoying the warm weather. Our dogs will also relish the opportunity to spend more time outdoors and the garden can offer the perfect space for them to roam and play to their heart's content. Yet while our gardens do offer safety they will pose some risks. With a little thought and planning however there are simple steps you can take to ensure your outdoor space is perfect for your pooch. Here are some top tips for keeping a spring in your pup, in your pup's step by protecting them from hidden hazards avoid poisonous plants while beautiful to the eye some common flowers such as hydrangeas geraniums fox cloves, and oleanders can be highly dangerous for pets say no to garden chemicals avoid using weed killer as they can be harmful to your pet pesticides such as slug pellets can also have fatal consequences for dogs if eaten and for other pets and wildlife too create dog friendly spaces Dogs can easily overheat on warmer days. Make sure there is plenty of shady spots such as under trees or shrubs where they can retreat to when they are feeling warm. Dogs may also enjoy a paddling pool where they can cool down. Secure the perimeter. Adventurous dogs may be inclined to find gaps in bushes and shrubs leading them to enter your neighbor's garden or worse, a busy road. Installing a sturdy fence will prevent your pooch from squeezing through any holes. Also, make sure your fence is high enough that they can't jump over it.
0: And moving on to some more news. Uh, students from a Suffolk school have won the prestigious Dora Love Prize, organised by the University of Essex, and given to a project that links the Holocaust with the world they live in. This entry by pupils at Newmarket Academy was inspired by the experiences of a World War II refugee in their town. They worked with Suffolk Archive to research a group of refugees who fled Germany, which they used to produce posters and created a geocache trail based on the memoirs of refugee Fritz Bull. Their work was judged the best by a panel of judges chaired by Janet Love, daughter of Holocaust survivor and educator Dora, and a former ANC member of the South African Parliament and the South African Human Rights Commission. This year's 10th anniversary ceremony was attended by two Holocaust survivors, Frank Bright, MBE, patron of the Dora Love Prize, and Maurice Blick, a child survivor of Bergen-Belsen, now an internationally renowned sculptor. Since the prize was founded in 2012, more than 50 schools from Suffolk and Essex have taken part in it.
1: Campaigners hoping to build a skate park in Thurston in memory of a teenager could soon be making their project a reality after it was announced land had been denoted for the project. The Ben Ragg Skate Park Charity, which was set up following the death of 13-year-old Ben Ragg after an accident involving an air gun in May 2016, said 33 acres had been gifted on the condition it was used for recreation. Roger Smith, charity chairman, said the charity was now joining forces with the village's football club and parish council to look at increasing facilities for the village on the donated land, including football pitches, allotments, dog walking areas and open spaces, as well as creating the skate park. He said, this large site presents a major opportunity for the whole community to work together to deliver much-needed recreational facilities far beyond the scope of our original intentions. We are joining forces with the football club to progress the potential, applying for planning permission and raise uh, further funds. Since being set up in 2017 by Ben's mum, Claire, the charity has raised thousands of pounds, has received an endorsement, from legendary skater Tony Hawk, um, set up temporary skate parks in the village and searched for years for a suitable permanent location as possible sites disappeared due to increased development in Thurston. Claire said, finding a site has been so difficult and this incredible offer gives us the potential to do so much more for the community. I'm so grateful and hope the community will support us. The charity will now be hosting a public consultation event at Thurston's New Green Centre on August the 11th between 2 and 8pm. The consultation will provide an opportunity to discuss the plans with the community and gauge support for possible future ideas. Ben, a keen skateboarder and BMX rider, died in what was described by the coroner as of a very rare tragic accident.
0: To mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee... Residents and friends of Bradfield Combust gathered to refurbish a decommissioned red telephone box. The kiosk, which was originally put out to mark King George V's coronation in 1935, is already a designated heritage site. It will now serve as an information centre for visitors. Panels have been installed in the box, providing a history of Bradfield Combust dating back to the Middle Ages. Nevin's based signwriter Paul Baldwin made a key contribution to the panels. In addition, a mature English oak has been planted on village green as part of the Queen's Green Canopy scheme. This national initiative encourages communities nationwide to plant a tree for the jubilee.
1: Children from Howard Community Academy in Bury St Edmunds and the Pines Primary School in Red Lodge enjoyed an unforgettable celebration for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. The Anglian Learning Schools and other primaries in the Trust joined together to sing a collection of songs at St Edmundsbury Cathedral. Jonathan Culpin, CEO of Anglian Learning, said this wonderful commemoration of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee has provided an unforgettable experience for pupils from all of our our primary schools. The special event was arranged by Emma Mason, the music subject lead at Linton Heights Junior School in Cambridgeshire.
0: The Berist branch of NFU Mutual has donated £6,379 to the Gatehouse charity, which helps vulnerable people and those in need. NFU Mutual donated the money from its national £1.92 million agency giving fund. The rural insurer launched the fund now in its third year to help local frontline charities across the country. The Agency Giving Fund forms part of NFU Mutual's £3.25 million funding pledge for both local and national charities in 2022 to help tackle the ongoing effects of the pandemic and assist with recovery. Amanda Bloomfield, the CAS, uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Gatehouse, based in Dettingen Way, said, We're enormously thankful to the Berist Nedman's agency of NFU Mutual. This money goes a long way to helping us support those most vulnerable in the community.
1: I continue with some more charity news from around Bury St Edmunds. A group of sports lovers have netted £3,548 for St Nicholas Hospice Care after organising a sponsored basketball-a-thon. The group, known as the Brawlers, took to the courts at South Lee Sports Centre for 12 hours straight to raise the money for the charity. Abby May's group member and the Hospice Corporate Fundraising Manager said, a huge thank you to everyone who supported us during this challenge. As if playing basketball for 12 hours wasn't enough, doing it throughout the night, 6pm to 6am, was an added challenge. I think we could all hear the noise of a ball bouncing for days afterwards.
0: The Dean of St Edmundsbury Cathedral is set to lay the 100,000th brick on a Lego model of the site, as part of a fundraising initiative going back six years, since 2016, visitors have been able to donate one pound towards a single brick for the model, which is located inside Barry's Nedman's iconic cathedral. At 11 a.m. on July the 27th, the cathedral's dean, the Very Reverend Joe Hawes, will set down the 100,000th brick. This will be part of an activity day. Visitors given the opportunity to build more features for the model. Lego-themed refreshments will also be on offer. Those wishing to take part in the event can attend the cathedral any time between 10am and noon.
1: The outgoing president of the Rotary Club of Bury St Edmunds has thanked the town's residents for being so generous during his year of office. David Mansfield said the support given for events such as the group's Christmas sleigh run and golf day had helped 11 charities including Barry St Edmunds Women's Aid Centre, Citizens Advice West Suffolk, Barry St Edmunds Rickshaw, St Nicholas Hospice Care, Samaritans of Barry St Edmunds um, and the Gatehouse Charity. Mr Mansfield said as I hand over to our new joint presidents Jenny Benfield and Robert Davey, I know that the Rotary Club of Bury St Edmunds will continue with its good work in its 83rd year.
0: Now, a feature. Um, Camille Berriman, who's a journalist at the Berry Free Press, has a personal view on survival, survival tools, deodorant and an ice lolly. This week we've been sweating and sweltering temperatures. I was particularly entertained by a national news headline which read UK to be hit by life-threatening 100 Fahrenheit heatwave on Sunday. Met Office warns it could be too hot to work or travel and says deadly heat could leave homes without water, gas or power in tinderbox Britain. Wow, what a warning. But while that makes it sound like the apocalypse is coming... Uh, I have faith we will be okay as long as we remain armed with industrial-strength deodorant and the occasional calipo, which I'm told is apparently an iced lolly. But as always, we do struggle with extreme temperatures in this country. Whether it's snow, rain, wind or heat, we have an issue. From tarmac melting to snow-hitting train schedules, infrastructure somehow grinds to a halt if the temperature is not between 5 centigrade and 25 centigrade, with no hint of rain, wind, sleet, fog or sunshine. I have, however, been entertained this week by some of the summer fashions sported by various and Edmunds residents. From jeans to bikinis, I really have seen it all. On Sunday, during a trip to Felixstowe, Clara was fascinated. With eyes out on stalks, she gasped, Mum, look at that man, he's no top on. That man has got his boobies out. This observation was repeated several times after the, after, uh, over the afternoon, with five-year-old Clara eventually concluding, it is disgusting. But by Tuesday it was so hot, even I was tempted to remove all my clothes in an attempt to cool down, with only consideration for my colleagues persuading me to retain any dignity. That, and the uh, the very free press air conditioning. But clearly not everyone felt the effects of the heat as much as I, As for the temperature already at 25 degrees centigrade at 9.30am, sports editor Russell Claydon arrived at work having spotted two elderly gentlemen walking through town wearing jeans, boots and overcoats. And sunglasses, of course. There must be a happy medium somewhere between nudity and full-on winter attire. I do hope readers have managed to find it this week.
1: Derek James, writing in the East Anglian Daily Times, when were the American air bases built in East Anglia? It says, here come the Yanks. Derek James looks at the start of an extraordinary chapter in the history of Norfolk and Suffolk. When we reflect on what happened in war-torn East Anglia 80 years ago, it takes some believing thousands of acres of land used to build airfields for Americans where they could launch attacks on Nazi Germany and it all took place with such speed and efficiency at a time when we were fighting for our lives so many men women and children had been killed in the bombing raids which left parks of our region in ruins it was time for our comrades from across the pond to head our way and what a difference they made but at such a cost by the time victory was declared in 1945 around seven thousand of them had lost their lives the 2nd Air Division of the United States Army Air Force was established in Maryland in June 1942, a mere six months after Pearl Harbour and five months after the establishment of the 8th Air Force, which came to the region. Its HQ was set up at Old Caton Norwich on September the 4th, 1942, and after a short period at Horsham St. Faith moved to, moved to Kettering Hall in December 1943 remaining there until the end of the war in europe the division included five bomb wings divided into 14 bombardment groups it also had five fighter groups in debden boxted steeple morden and bottisham there were airstrips and stations built across norfolk suffolk and neighboring counties in a matter of months an amazing feat in peacetime let alone during a world war Most of these young Americans had never left home before and were shocked to see how we were struggling to survive. Just imagine the noise the huge flying fortress and the Liberator bombers made when they took off and landed. So many never returned, being shot down over enemy territory. These plans had a there and back range of 2,100 miles, were armed with seven point sorry, with seven 0.5 calibre guns, loaded with 2,000 bomb pound. Let me read that again. Loaded with four 2,000 pound bombs and normally had a crew of six to 10. The first mission was flown on November the 7th, 1942 and the final one on April the 25th, 1945. In the hundreds of missions, a total of one thousand and ninety-nine sorry, 199,883 tons of bombs were dropped on enemy installations in all parts of Europe, from Norway in the north to to the shores of the Mediterranean in the south, and from Poland and Romania in the east to the shoes of the Atlantic in the west. The division's gunners destroyed 1,079 enemy fighters, while 1,458 liberators were lost. So, what did the locals make of the strange talking strangers? Writing in the East Anglian magazine in the 1950s on Americans in Suffolk, G. H. Rose commented, We found them to be well behaved, quiet, friendly, and of finer physique. We realised that they were a little homesick, and we listened to many a story from them. The first Sunday after they moved in, in their padre called upon us, introducing himself as Lieutenant Stout. He was most um, ingrate, ingrate, ingrati- ingratiating, and embarrassingly free with gifts. He took me to headquarters and introduced several officers, including one, McCorkle, a big Texan. He came back to view the cottage, which is the wonder of all the troops. They never ceased to exclaim at the strange phenom- phenomenon of a thatched roof. Tea had been prepared for the padre, and Mr. Corkle, But they refused to sit down with us until they had returned to camp for their sea rations in exchange for hospitality. There appears to have been a strict rule in the US forces. They had been advised during their training, no doubt, that British people were on short commons. A few days before Christmas, that's 1943, in time for the children's party, our American friends sent two large baskets full of toys and sweets which they received from home. They also rigged up electric lights on the Christmas tree and helped in, en- helped in entertaining the children. Many were the good offices performed by these temporary East Anglians.
0: We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo, and Newmarket Journal, from whom, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Chris, David, Sue, and Colin, it's goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Owens. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.